Welcome to the Sunday Talk Podcast with Father Christopher Vaccaro, Chaplain and Director of Catholic Campus Ministry for the University of Mary, Washington. I am Kevin McGraw, Associate Campus Minister. The Sunday Talk Podcast is recorded each week with an in-person student audience at 7.30 p.m. from the St. John Bosco Center, the home of the Catholic Campus Ministry at UMW. For fall 2020, Father Vaccaro is presenting on the series, The Beauty and Effect of the Sacraments of the Church. In this second episode of the series, Father Vaccaro speaks about the sacrament of baptism and how we the baptized are called to new life in Christ and sent on mission as the Lord's disciples. Now, here is Father Vaccaro. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of God in Jesus. Holy Mother God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Bosco, St. John the Baptist, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. St. John the Baptist, uh, you know, invoked there because he would be uh, a good example for baptism, right? John the Baptist. So, welcome back. Glad to see we have more people than last week. Right? Uh, so, what we're going to do is this, this the setup for this week will be the way we do all of the sacraments. So, I'm going to begin with three, usually three different scripture quotes, could be more, but one where we see baptism in scripture, one where we see the institution of the sacrament. As we say with all the sacraments, as I pointed out, step right in, welcome. Um, where we say, where the sacraments are instituted, that Christ himself institutes those sacraments. And then I will also try to show where we see the sacrament, if we have a place, Most sometimes it's inferred, sometimes it's explicit, where we see the sacrament being uh, lived out in the early church, usually Acts of the Apostles. Uh, so this week we have baptism, next week we're speaking about the Eucharist, week after that we're speaking about confirmation. Those three sacraments are known as what? Together, as a collective group. The sacraments of the Eucharist? Well, well that would be usually, yeah, you are right, that would be good, but they actually have a name uh, that they go by. So they're clumped and there's a, a name that we call, yes? Initiation. The three of them together are the sacraments of initiation. Because taken together, one becomes a full member of the church. We'll get into that as we go through. But in baptism, we'll see that one is incorporated into the life of Christ. Then, at the end of life, there are three sacraments that people should receive. Those would be which sacraments? Well, that I'm out. <laughs> so at the end of life, what sacraments, unless you get married at the end? Yes. That would be one, anointing the sick. And this is in an ideal situation, okay? Yes, and? Correct. So there are three sacraments that bring us into the church, and there are three sacraments that are supposed to lead us out. So we would say three sacraments that prepare us for the journey in life, three sacraments that prepare us for the journey to heaven. So that's a good thing to remember, like as you're thinking like elderly people, 
are passing away. Now, obviously, if someone's in a car accident, they're not necessarily going to have the availability to get all of those sacraments. Hopefully, they'll have a priest nearby for at least one or two of them. But ideally, I'll just give you a little like forward thing to when we get to anointing the sick. A lot of times, this is what happens: is people um, will call a parish, so they'll call me up and they'll be like, "My my aunt's dying now." So you you go driving out to the house or the hospital, wherever they are, and the person is uh, like, "Get in here! Get in here! You're dying right now." Of course, they're unconscious. They can't make a confession. They can't receive communion. They can't receive the anointing. But you say to them, like, how long have they been in this condition? And they say, oh, they've been dying for the last year, year and a half. And they've never caught. So the sacraments aren't like, try to get in there at the absolute last minute. What really should happen, and I say this to people when I'm meeting, like a homebound person. Let's say someone's diagnosed with stage four cancer. I will often say, when the doctor says you're reaching the end, let me know, because that's the point where really we should do the anointing of the sick and the last rite, when they're still able to make a confession. It may be a week or two before the person dies, but that's the preparation for the journey. It doesn't mean they need to receive the sacrament five minutes before they die. So just like a practical thing to Okay, so. The three scripture quotes we'll look at. The baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus, now, did Jesus need to be baptized? But no. So you say no. Why do you say no? Why did he not need to be baptized? Okay. Our answer is God was God the Son was sinless, therefore he did not need to be baptized. That's correct. Right? But he images what it is for us. So he goes and he replies. So let it be now it is proper for us to do the to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as he was baptized and came out of the water, a very beautiful moment in the scriptures, the heavens opened and the spirit descended like a dove. One of the images of the Holy Spirit is not just created. That is the image that we have for. And it says, alighting on him, landing on him, okay? A voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We see the Trinity image in that moment of baptism, that it wasn't simply an action of God the Son, it was also an action of God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Now, where is this sacrament instituted? So that's where he receives it, but an instituted sacrament, what we mean by that is where it is instituted for the church. That's not where it's instituted for us, that's where we get a symbol of the sacrament, that's where he received it. It is instituted in Matthew 28, 18-20. So that would say the institution, or like, you hear that for communion, the institution narrative, you've heard that phrase, that's, we'll speak about that next week, but at the Mass, that's when the priest says the words of consecration. So the institution of baptism is 
in Matthew 28. He says, and Jesus came and, sp and spoke to them. I mistyped it. I wrote, and Jesus came and spanked to them. <laughs> so Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded. And I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The great commandment. So the reason we say that that's where it's instituted, he commands the church to do this. And then we see that lived out in our third scripture, which is Pentecost. Which, what I want you all to know, what chapter in Acts, the book of Acts, is Pentecost? We should all know this, because it's the beginning of the church. So you get people who are like, I know, I know there's Pentecost, where? And this, there should be some scripture that we generally know. Okay? So... That you're going to learn one tonight. Who wants to take a guess? What chapter? So how many chapters are in Acts? Anyone want to take a stab? Okay. So, I'll give you a hint. Do you think there's more than 14 chapters or less than 14 chapters in Acts of the Apostles? Now, I don't have it written on my sheet, so it's not like I've got it. I, I need to know it too, okay? Allison, more than 14 or less in Acts? You would be correct. Okay? JP, more than 20 or less than 20? He says more. He would be correct. Okay? So, we have, who wants to take a stab now? We've got more. I'll say it's less than 30. Of a large group of Jewish people that were gathered for a feast. 
when we speak of the gift of the spirit or the charismatic gift of tongues, which often sounds like mumbling of some variety and then is interpreted, that is a different uh, sort of uh, gift that is given by the spirit. And it's done in a manner where it needs to be interpreted too, not just someone mumbling. That's sort of the way that they are speaking. It's not mumbling. So the in, in this they go out and it says, then they proclaim Christ. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And listen how clear this is. Like he doesn't say, well, you should think about something. So this is our problem. It's the way we approach things is we're like, well, you know, go have a cappuccino and maybe reflect on it a little bit. Right? That's how we do it. So tell me whether this sounds like that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's Peter's response. It's to the it's to the heart. This is urgent that you do this. So that was his statement, and he says, "Here's what the response: The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call." And many other words he warned them and pleaded with them: "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's some serious baptism. We think we're happy when we have like one. That was 3,000 in a day. Those guys were tired by the end of the day. But that's what the Holy Spirit can do. And that's how we see baptism played out. He didn't say, just accept Jesus in your heart. He said, go and be baptized. So the church always fulfills the commands of Christ. That's why it speaks of the necessity of baptism. We don't we use that because that is what our Lord said. He said in Matthew 28, go and baptize people. So Peter takes our Lord at his word, and so when they say, What do we need to do? He says, Go and be baptized. Yes, David. Let's hold on that. We'll get into that later. Hold that question at the end and you can go fire that. Okay? Because I have some other questions before that. So the second part of, of the talk is going to be what I call essential information about the sacraments, which is divided up by Q&A. So I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to see whether you guys can answer them. And then I'll fill in details that need to be, instead of me just going on and on about droning on about uh, the sacraments, let's see how much we already know. I look at this fine group and I say, these look like a group of theologians here. <laughs> okay, first question. What is required for one to be baptized? So, requirements. We'll start right over here. Yes, let's see. Free will. Okay, that would be true. So, in other words, it needs to be freely asked for. In the case of an adult, they need to ask for it freely. Or in the case of the child, it would be the parents asking for the child. But you are right. So, it needs to be freely asked for. Yes? Uh, 
Okay, or it's fine. Yes, it, it, it's it's highly recommended. It's not absolutely necessary that one have a godparent. I mean, it's not in the normal course of things the church asks for godparents. We'll get into that in a bit. But there could be situations where that is. So, for instance, let's say going back to the case where I said a car accident occurs. I'm on the side of the road, I'm running up to the window of the car, I'm like, are you Christian? No, I'm not. Oh, we need baptism. Or our godparents, you know. Like, so, no, you baptize right there. But generally, correct, you would need godparents. We need water, not just some form of liquid. <laughs> you are right, it is a form of liquid. There's a specific form of liquid that we need. We need only water. It can only be done with water. Yes, David. The right words, which I'm going to read later because recently some of you may have heard, there was a very interesting thing that's now happening. Two dioceses. Well, I'll tell that story here in a minute. But uh, so, any other things? Everyone who is to be baptized is required to make a profession of faith. The thing we're missing is they need to have faith. Now this is key, but I want you to file this for all the sacraments we speak about. Because you're going to hear me reference over and over, I said it last week, how faith is necessary for the sacraments to operate correctly with oneself. It doesn't mean that God is not operating in his way, even if a person is lacking. But we have to have faith. Okay? If we don't have faith, and if we don't have faith here, like if a person doesn't believe, they can't be baptized. This actually occurs. So I'll tell you a true story from when I was in a parish. We had a lady, now I didn't run the RCIA of this parish, but um, I helped out with it. And she wanted to, yeah, she was, I believe she was of no faith, or maybe she was of an Eastern faith. She was not Christian. So she had gone through some of the RCIA, but then like stopped showing up. When it got, then she popped in like right around Easter time and wanted to receive baptism. And so the, the DRE, the person who was sort of running the class, and this is how I got sort of drawn into the middle of it because of what occurred. She said to the lady, she goes, well, you know, we haven't seen you for weeks. And I remember the lady's response was, what do you think I was going shopping? And I was like, well, I don't know what, I don't know if you were shopping. Like, I mean, you just weren't here. But she asked, like, how many sacraments are there? And the woman's like, nine. <laughs> that's right, it's seven, that's right. And then she said, like, do you know what the Bible is? And the woman's like, a book. Well, you're right. That's where the word Bible comes from. But she didn't know any of the faith, like she didn't know any of the basics. So the person can't be baptized. Now, this is your question. Correct, but that goes to what I said there. In that case, the parents would have to have the faith because they make a promise that they will raise the children in uh, the faith. So they're making the promise for the child. The parent, but let's say the parents don't have faith. Like this can occur too, is that you have someone roll into a baptismal class and the parent, you know, they go through the class and you say, all right, 
I don't know who you are. And so you say, do you practice the faith? No. Do you plan to practice the faith? No. That would be a case where if you don't have a founded hope that the child is going to be raised in faith, you cannot baptize the child. So the faith is required for baptism, whether it's an adult that they personally have faith or whether a child, uh, the parents represent that. So, but that's a good question. This is done personally in the case of an adult or by the parents of the church in the case of infants. So the parents make the profession of faith or uh, the person does. If you're here at Easter, uh, I don't know, I mean, in previous years, not last year, you weren't here for Easter, but if we have anyone to be baptized, you'll hear this profession of faith. They will make a profession of faith. And we all make a profession of faith. What happens at the Easter Vigil every year? We renew the baptismal promises, right? Do you, do you believe that if you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises, the same thing he promised in baptism? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? The thing people miss about that is it's three no's, three yeses. You're like, you caught that. But that's not what people miss. What people miss is the second part. You notice that the three promises are each referencing one person of the Trinity. You believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I do. You believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I do. You believe in the Holy Spirit. So it's actually, it's a faith in what we profess and a faith in the Trinity that is professed there in the promises. Yeah? Isn't the, uh, when you were looking at that simple house, when I look at the Spanish text, I thought it kind of interesting that when the question over the question that you believe in God, the Father, right? I mean, the answer in Spanish is not actually I do, but yes, I believe. You have options for that. Like at the beginning of the baptismal rite, when you begin, the first question in the baptismal rite is, what do you ask of God's church for this child if it's a child baptism? And the answer can be baptism or faith. So there are appropriate answers that are similar that communicate the same thing, which is belief. And that's the crux of this, which is we, there needs to be faith. Now, the Godfather and or Godmother, because you can have one, or both. So you can't have two God, this is a fight that people get into, like, well, I want to have two women be godmothers. No, it's godparents, so it's a godfather and mother, or, or just a godfather or a godmother. So, and the whole ecclesial community share the responsibility of baptismal preparation, as well as for the development of safeguarding the faith and grace given in baptism. I'm going to read that again. It is, the, it is the Godfather and Godmother, along with the whole ecclesial community, which is the whole church community, share responsibility for baptismal preparation, as well as for the development and safeguarding of the faith and grace given in baptism. So we collectively have a responsibility for our brothers and sisters in I would argue this understanding of baptism is one, the, the lack of this understanding and, and acceptance 
is in part how we've gotten to the case where we're at in many people. There was a survey that came out this weekend that said for parents, we speak about parents and then their children, their, I forget it was high school children or but at least adolescent children. For, in Catholic homes, I believe it was 71% of parents believed that it was very important that faith be practiced in the home. Now, that itself is problematic, right? Basically, 30% of Catholic parents don't think that. But regardless, for the children, it was half that number. It was like 40%. So we're not passing the faith up. And, and collectively, you see this in parishes, people are like, well, what do you want me to do? What, what is my involvement? We make a promise in baptism that we, will, we promise God that we will keep the life of faith alive. And if, you're, if one day, God willing, your children to have them baptized as parents, you promise to raise them in the faith. I mean, I think we don't take our word seriously. You don't, you don't want to lie to God. That's not a good thing. But I think we casually do that because it's not like that. But it is an obligation on us all to build up the family of faith. Baptism is a sacrament of faith. But faith needs a community of believers. Understand those two are never separated in the church. This is why it is so important that churches do a better job of building up a community of believers. How many of you come from parishes where you would say that the community in the parish, that there is a genuine community of people who cares about one another in their parish? So home parish where you would say, you would, your community, you say, my community cares about people. One, two, three, Half. Half the people in our parish are half. Half year two. So together we have a whole community. Four, five. There's maybe 15 or 20 people here. How many are online? Three. Plus the three. I can't tell if they're raising their hands. So we have, let's say, 25 people here. I'll even give one of those people, even though we don't have anyone commenting on there that they're a community. No, but I can ask. But yeah, ask them. Like, we'll find out. We'll, we'll, that way they're sitting at like a blackened screen like he's forgotten about us. But <laughs> I have not. So, think of that. Five out of 20. Five out of 25. This, there's a problem when our community, and this is just people who feel this way. It doesn't mean that people actually do. Every hand should go up in a Catholic church. It doesn't mean that we're doing it perfectly, but there's a problem when we don't feel like we care about one another. This is an essential part. Faith needs a community of believers. Is it any surprise that people are hemorrhaging out of the church? They don't feel cared for. Now, that's not the only reason, but that's a legitimate complaint. It's supposedly a family of faith. No one even knows who I am. I go in every week to Mass. I sit in the same pew. I drop a dollar in the collection or $20 in the collection. I sing the songs. I receive communion. I go out the door and everyone runs to their car. I get sick. No one calls. Because no one knows one another in a lot of parishes. What was the answer there? 
Someone just said they're online. <laughs> happy to have you. Do you have any love in your parish? I'm online. <laughs> they said yes. they don't get it. Your issue with parishes have some parishes have a building that some parishes have a building. They are. Some parishes, so to give you think, back in the early church, there were parishes, parishes nowadays, like there is a parish in Manassas that I believe has, uh, and I could be slightly off of this, but I think it has 20,000 people registered in that parish. That is larger than entire dioceses. In, in some of the early church, if you can think about that, they would have that parish would have a bishop if it were in the early church. So you have these mega parishes. I served at one. I served at the either the second or third largest parish in Arlington, which is Our Lady of Angels. I don't know if it still is, but when I was there, it was. And it's seventeen thousand people. St. Mary's down the street is a, a parish. I mean. There's 10 masses or 11 masses on Sunday. At the parish I came from, there were like eight or nine masses. So whatever, now, there's, I understand why we do this, but there's a, a negative part of this. You have so many people coming in and out that people are like, well, I gotta get out of the parking lot. And so you have a small group of people that are involved in the parish, but that doesn't mean that it's a group that believes and cares about one another. Now, I also wanna say not to, Grow tomatoes at big parishes. It's not only because of big parishes. Some big parishes do a great job of that. I think in general, parishes are not doing that well. And instead of us collectively saying, people, I mean, when you see 70% of parents and then 40% of their adolescent or young adult children seeing faith as a key component, something isn't being passed along. And if you go to people, even in our own group here, of a small segment of the community, and understand, a segment of our community that has chosen to come for formation, so you're cutting out a segment that wouldn't come. So, so a committed segment, and only, say, a quarter of those people feel that their parishes are like that. And let me tell you, I'd agree with you. The parish I grew up in, there were elements that were very good, but as a whole, I wouldn't say that in the parish I grew up in. So I want you to understand the community of believers, and you'll see here in our community, this is why we stress it. People are like, ah, look, you know, let us go. We just want to go to Mass on Sunday. No, that's not what we should be doing. That's not a, that's not a parish. A parish is not a group of people who show up once a week and leave. That, that, so I'm not going to do that. Now, you can't force people. It's not your change. But the offer will always be there because I understand this is the only way that faith grows. It is only within the faith of the church that each of the faithful can believe. The faith required for baptism is not a perfect and mature faith. So people say, I receive baptism. It's an infant faith, right? It's the beginning of what should be developed. The catechumen or godparent is asked, what do you ask of God's church? That's the first question. And they say faith or baptism. For all the baptized, children or adults, faith must grow after baptism. It is for this reason that each year at the Easter vigil, we renew the baptismal promises. It's to signify a growth 
in their commitment to the faith. Now, you know what most Catholics do? They don't go to the Easter Vigil because it's too long. It's supposed to be the Mass that signifies the full movement of salvation history, the, the readings leading up to salvation. The sacraments are celebrated there so that new people are received into the church, and then the community of faith is there liturgically, and then afterwards to celebrate with them. Our approach is has become to a lot of things in our country very worldly. You know, it's like, well, I, I don't need to go there. Everything's about why I need to go there. It goes from our understanding of faith. That's the liturgy where you review your baptismal promises. Now, you also do it on Easter Sunday instead of the creed. But it's specifically at the Easter vigil because the other people are also receiving their sacraments. Preparation for baptism leads one to the threshold of new life. But the community of faith should be leading people beyond that. Okay, second question. Who can baptize? Who's able to baptize? Let's see, yes. Um, ordinarily, ordinarily. Okay, he says ordinarily clergy, extraordinarily anybody. So when you say clergy, who are you referring to? So any of the clergy, any of the three orders of the, the clergy, deacon, priest, or bishop, would be ordinary ministers of the sacrament, and in cases of necessity, anyone can baptize. Does that include a non-Christian? Okay, think it through, and then give me an answer. Ponder. Everyone's pondering right now. <laughs> and who wants to throw a step? So the question is, and I don't want to, it's not a trick question, it's just, he said anyone can then baptize, so does that include a non-Christian? We will start here. Okay, I like half of your answer, and I'll explain in a minute. So she said, no, because you need faith to baptize. I'll explain in a minute. So we're going to go, who's next? Right here, what's your answer? So your answer would be no, too, because that would be a non. So it's no, okay? Yeah, uh, the Okay, so you are right. They need an intention to do it. They don't personally need faith. That would be an odd thing, but a non-Catholic can actually baptize someone if they have the intention of doing it the way the church wants. Yes? Okay. Uh, baptism of desire is really like if someone, you wouldn't know, but it's like someone who desires baptism but is unable to get baptized. Say a um, say a person who's dying, like say a person who's dying in an auto accident, but it realizes that towards the end they, that as they're lying there, I believe in Christianity, they don't have the opportunity for baptism. That would be the kind of situation of desire that we speak about. So in other words, in ordinary circumstances, there's a right and pouring, but sometimes they get a martyr. We'd say that's baptism of blood, that they give their life for the faith. So it is a baptism in and of itself, a confession of faith. So, yes, uh, 
I, there's an argument that that is the case, that they would be there. What we say about the, a, whether it be a victim of abortion or even a, um, a child that is born in, uh, prematurely and dies, like a, a miscarriage, or a child that is born and has not yet been uh, baptized and dies, say some child that dies of sins or something like before baptism. In that case, the church, it says, entrusts it to the Lord. Um, I think there's a strong argument uh, theologically. Well, it's not. And here, here's the argument theologically that I think we can definitely say that. I mean, I would, this is my argument for it. At the end of time, there's only going to be heaven or hell, right? There's no purgatory because that's temporary state uh, or what we call a temporal state. So if there's only heaven or hell and they could not be in hell because they did not commit a personal uh any personal sin, okay, grave sin, uh, that it would seem to be of the case that they would be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Now, whether it's immediate, otherwise, the church doesn't know that, so it doesn't define anything on it. It just says we, we entrust it to the Lord. But I don't think we need to despair of the salvation of infants who die. That would be, I think, that would be a, a theologically accurate, but also, like you wouldn't just say, and, and let me understand, this is a good question, because a lot of times people are like, well, I think this. The problem with that is it doesn't allow us, we just conclude things that aren't factual. Now, it could be the case, but there are things we don't know. So it, it's a lot, there's more humility in saying we give that to the Lord, as opposed to saying, well, this is what I think, and therefore it is. Because that's kind of how we approach things, right? Not just with this issue, but a lot of issues. We're like, well, that's what I think. Okay, that, that may be nice if you think that. That doesn't mean that it's a reality. It could be, but it may not be. Um, hold on, David. Let me make a, a, one more comment on this. So the ordinary minister or the bishop, priest, or deacon. In the Latin church, a deacon can baptize. In the Eastern church... It would only be a bishop or priest. Why? They do have deacons, but I want you to think through. I Why in the Eastern Catholic Church would it only be a bishop or a priest who can baptize? Chastity reasons. Good guess. Not right, but good guess. I know what you're thinking there. In other words, like they, you know, in terms of uh, continence before offering the sacraments, that's why I say good guess. It is a good guess, but all right. Because they, yes, Kevin. Well, I don't know if I'm, how I think about it. I'm not sure if this is right, but typically when they baptize an infant, they give all the sacraments of initiation. That's right. And so, therefore, if you're going to give Eucharistic confirmation, it must be a priest. Right. Because they do the three sacraments at the same time, and only a priest or deacon can confirm, or I'm sorry, a priest or bishop can confirm, a deacon can't baptize in the Eastern Church. And a priest only gives confirmation generally in, with permission in the Latin Church, but there in the Eastern Church they do it at, with permission at baptism. It's called chrismation. It says, in case of necessity, any person can baptize provided he has the intention of doing what the church does, even if they don't have faith themselves. Yes? Um, if, like, you're in an all-over and you get 
can't express in some environments that you might be adaptogen. So those are things that's better and they expect to break those and have an option that can be Great question. So she's saying if there's an emergency case, so this happened with my brother actually. So my brother, when he was like, I don't remember exactly, but let's say like three weeks old before my parents had had him baptized, he had a fever of 104 and had meningitis. So when they, they raised him to the hospital and they thought he was going to die. So my dad baptized him in the car on the way to the hospital or when they got there, one of the two. So he got better, thank God. Actually, it's his birthday today. No, great you brought it up. So what would happen then? So you tell me. I'm, I'm with my theologians here. So what would you do? So the my dad comes in and says to one of you, do I, what do I need to do now? Do I need to, I baptize him in the car. Yeah. I mean, that's a legitimate baptism anyway. So he wouldn't be baptized again. That's right. What he would do is he would go and receive the other rites within baptism, but would not be rebaptized. And the baptism rite of record would actually be, my dad would be the one who would administer baptism to isn't that interesting? So you're right. Because you only baptize one time. If he was validly baptized, he doesn't get baptized again. But you may say, what are the rites? Will the anointing that go on in baptism? So those will be done. So they had a ceremony, but there wasn't a rebaptism. Okay. Then what needs to be done is the we say the rite is done, and the rite of baptism involves the essential rite of the sacrament, the matter and form. The essential rite is, I'm seeing what you're saying, there's a bug crawling <laughs> We will let him live, because we are, we are, tonight, I'm like St. Francis, <laughs> unless that's a cockroach. Is that a cockroach? Yeah. All right, very good. If it was a cockroach, I would be, I would be Herod. Okay, but the essential rite of baptism is you need water, not any liquid. Okay. No, that's right. No baptism. No coke baptisms. No Kool Aid baptisms. Water, and you need to say you pour the water over the head or immersion. Immersion means the whole the whole body is going under, and you you say I baptize you, you know whatever name you know, Gene. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So. That is the essential right. The matter is the water being poured, and the form of the sacrament is the words being used. Okay? Yes? A question. Usually, usually, oftentimes I hear it in the deacon, but usually it's given the largest portion of the largest baptism. I think many at many larger parishes the deacons do it because it's it's something they can do. It's a sacrament they can do, and it takes 
some of the work off of the priests. I do think that it's nice uh, that priests do it as regularly as they can because they can often encourage people, uh, not that deacons couldn't, but encourage people to receive other sacraments that they may need or sort of welcome them into the faith community that's there, particularly pastors doing that. So next question, is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it absolutely necessary? And you got people asking this, right? So, who wants to take a step? Okay, Brian. I'm going to say no. Because with your um, ancient Chinese person, Okay. So, he, Brian says no because in case you're an ancient Chinese person and don't know about uh, and don't know about baptism and you're done. Okay? What's your name? Lily. Lily. Okay. No, that's fine. Okay, so she says yes, but sort of like a, a, a baptism of desire. Okay, yes. I would say yes, and then require that you know about baptism as an option. But if you die without it, or you don't have to it, then that's another situation where you just like press the button and then it's Okay. So if you know about it, it's required. Otherwise, not so. Yes. I have a question from online. <laughs> All right, hold on. We've got the online question. <laughs> Sorry. Do we have a name? It's Gerilyn. Gerilyn. Okay. Right. Um, they ask, can one parent being Catholic and spouse not, and not married in the church, still have a baby baptized if only one parent is Catholic? Uh, the answer is yes, uh, depending on circumstances. They would need to have a founded hope that the child was going to be raised in the faith. But if if that parent who's Catholic plans to raise the child in the faith, the answer would be yes. Thank you. Thank you, Gerilyn. Yes. In your sin, yeah. Okay, good point. So our Lord affirms the necessity of, of, of baptism for salvation in Matthew 28, right? He commands his disciples to proclaim the gospels to all nations and to baptize. Baptism is necessary for salvation to those whom the gospel has been proclaimed and have the possibility of asking for the sacrament. So it is required of those who can ask it. The church does not know any means other than baptism for entry into eternal beatitude. We need to be very careful with what people do, though, just so you know, is we assume the church saying it doesn't know of anything does not mean that everyone who isn't baptized gets to heaven. Nor does it mean that those who aren't baptized necessarily do not enter the kingdom of heaven. We entrust those people to the Lord. So it, we only know of one means of salvation 
through baptism. That's what our Lord has given us. That is why she takes care not to neglect the mission she has received, to see that all can be baptized and reborn of the Spirit. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he is not bound by the sacraments. That's where like the, the baptism of desire comes in. We don't know how he can work from outside. He's only given us a certain means for us to work, though. Now, this is why evangelization should oftentimes take uh, the form of a, a priest, deacon, lay person, bishop, going and proclaiming and being a little bit more candid about the need for baptism. I think we've sort of watered it down to the point where we're kind of like, well, if you're a good person, that's all that matters. Please understand that that is nowhere in the New Testament where people are like, well, you're kind of a good person. We've introduced that now, but that's not what we've, we received. What we receive is something that is, is a forceful statement, not coercion, but a forceful and beautiful statement that is an offering of salvation. So, I wanted. To, I said I would go back to this about the matter and form of the sacrament, which we went over. The matter being water being poured over the head or immersion within water, and the form being the words "I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit." If those things are not done, the sacrament does not happen. So if they're not water, I actually disagree in RCIA. I show this picture every year. Diana probably saw that. Did I show the picture of the baby, the naked baby with the priest dunking the butt into the bathroom? <laughs> no. So I was doing a wedding prep for a couple who had gotten married outside the church and now we're getting married in the church. And they wanted, I forget, I think they wanted to get married on the the day of their child of the baptism, they had baptized their son. So they said, we've already had him baptized. And I remember the wife was like, here, you know, we were going through, she's like, here's a picture. Don't you think it's cute? And she shows me a picture of a priest with a new child dunking the butt into the baptism. I lie to you not. I mean, I have a picture. So I was horrified. On several levels. <laughs> and I had to casually say, because I didn't want to alert her, I said, was any water poured over the head? Hopefully before. <laughs> so she went back and they found a picture where water was also poured over the head. So I have no idea what that guy was doing. That is not part of the right. But that is something. Now, the reason I raise that is there are things that can happen like that. Like, you can see, let's say for the sake of argument, that that is all that happened. The guy said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There, there's no baptism. There's no water poured over the head. That's not immersion. Another form that's invalid is sprinkling. I've never seen this done with people just like sprinkling water. That's not a, a valid form. And this came in the last month. You can look this up. The Vatican came out. I guess a question had come in. And they said, can you say, because some people said, 
when people baptize, they would say, we baptize you. In other words, the community baptizing. So the priest or deacon would say, instead of I baptize you, they would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father Matthew Hood of the Archdiocese of Detroit learned the hard way. He thought he had been ordained a priest in 2017. He'd been doing priestly ministry since 2017. And this summer, he learned not only he wasn't a priest, he was not a Christian. By, because his baptism was invalid. The priest who had baptized him, or deacon, had used the wrong form of the sacrament intentionally. It wasn't like an error. They said, we baptize you. The Vatican said, the sacrament has to be done with I baptize. It's not the, when it says I, it's referring to Christ who baptizes. It is Christ who bestows the sacraments. It's not we. So the Vatican came out and said, all of those are invalid. This guy goes back and finds a video of his baptism where the priest doing it was said the wrong thing. So he had to go back, get baptized, receive his first communion, be ordained a deacon, be ordained a priest again. Not again, I mean, but he went through the whole rite. He was, this happened in the last three months. And then another priest, it just came out this week, the same thing happened to him in the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Father Hood thought he had been baptized as a baby, but he noticed that the Vatican congregation had said that the words of baptism make it invalid when you use the word we instead of I. Because his baptism was invalid, so were the other sacraments. He wasn't free to be ordained. You must be baptized before you receive any of the other sacraments. Yeah. Well, the baptisms would be okay because anyone can baptize. But what wasn't okay was some of the other sacraments that he had, he had, he had done. So, for instance, I don't know how they are. You can actually go on. You type, go, look on Google tonight. Type in Father Matthew Hood. You can read the statement that the Archdiocese put out because they actually said if you have uh, received certain sacraments from him, and I forget which ones they were, uh, maybe confirmation if he was like at a, at a uh, confirmation, the masses that he celebrated. Now, that doesn't mean those people were responsible for because they went in good faith, but that there was not the confection of the Eucharist there. So the Archdiocese actually put out a statement alerting certain people, marriages, because, what's that? Confessions. Now, we the confessions, and I need to read what the Archdiocese said. They may have said, uh, in those cases where one made it in good faith, that we entrust that to the Lord. But it, we, they did not say, well, everything's good, we entrust it, because there's a, yeah, you know what? I, they, I read this a, a lot of them, but I believe, I would check it to make sure, but I believe what they said was, uh, you can, you know, you're not totally responsible for this situation, but it would be good to make a good confession of your nearest opportunity yeah. to resolve your own situation. Yeah, in other words, what would be a good thing to do would be, you'd go back, if you had any mortal sins, you'd confess any of the sins there that you did. And I think that's what they wrote, actually. Yes? 
I think we already covered this, but someone asked, um, did that invalid priest end up having to redo his seminary education after re-receiving the sacraments? No, no, because he's still at the seminary, and he wanted to be, I mean, it was all done within like a day or a couple of days. So it wasn't that he went through and it was like, shoot, I gotta go back through seven years of seminary. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I'd be like, I'm done, I'm out of here. I'm not done. So no, he all he did was he had to be reordained, uh, and then he went right back into ministry. And the diocese put out an announcement regarding the sacraments, and I think you're right, confession. They said we recommend you go back as soon as possible, but not to despair of if like someone had died who received because they had gone in good faith. There's nothing anyone could have known. He just he found that out. So, fifth question. What are the effects of baptism? Now, when you answer this, I don't just want, I'll give you one, but I'll tell you how I don't want them to give you one. Like, I don't just want you to say, take away original sin. But again, hopefully as we're going through, you're recognizing we're not talking about this the same way as we do in CCD, right? This gets to the theology of baptism so you know it. So like, if you say, takes away original sin, I want you to explain that more. So I'll do that one. Takes away original sin. Original sin is what? Anyone who came to my talk two years ago, did anyone come when we did the one on uh, theology of the body? We did this. Yes. So what is original sin? Correct. The eating of the forbidden fruit, Eve, tempted by the Satan, offers it to Adam, they eat, and then the Lord comes in and there is consequences for everyone. Original sin is the original rebellion of man against God. We all participate in that sin as we are fallen from, we are descendants of Adam and Eve. So, original sin is taken away. We didn't commit that sin. We call it a sin of nature, or a the, the original sin, the effect of someone rebelling. We're not in union with God. That is taken away, lifted off us individually in our human natures. Okay, so that's the first thing. Next. Another effect of baptism. Yeah? Um, you more? You're right, but more? What does that mean? Um, you... Well, like, as, a, as a each individual, so they're like, welcomed into the church. You can't obviously participate fully like, with the other sacraments, but you can, um, I don't know, it's just part of that community. Well, you're in the church, you have the rights and responsibilities of a baptized member of the faith, meaning you're able to proceed and get the other sacraments. Usually, if you're an adult, you're receiving them later that night. Uh, but moreover, uh, what you have is you are able to uh, claim the title Christian. You are able to uh, call upon the Holy Spirit in your prayer. You are able to call God, you know, Father, have the, the clo closeness that is there. That all come from membership in the church. And also the, the Christian community. You shouldn't be cared for by the other people there. Yes, so good. That's excellent. Yep. Yes, 
And we would call that reception of charity in the soul. You would receive sanctifying grace. She said you received the Trinity, which is correct, because you received the life of God, which is charity. So you receive the Trinity into your soul. You receive the, the triune God's life within your soul. Probably said differently, like if someone asked, a better way to say that would say, you receive charity in the soul or, or grace in the soul. But you're not wrong because grace is the life of God. It's just the reason I wouldn't use that formulation is someone would assume that God then is, you know, the Trinity completely rests within you. His life is there, but God is bigger than that. So you receive God into your soul, but it's not like he's held in a bottle, a genie in a bottle. Not that you were saying that, but it's just a, probably a better way to explain that. But you're correct. Um, anything else? I'm looking for, say, two more. Maybe three. Yes. Um, so we have so far, member of the church, take away original sin, receive charity in the soul. Go. Well, it's, this one speaks to the, it can be repeated, the indelible mark on the soul. Yes. That uh, is there for all eternity. Three sacraments bestow what is called a sacramental character. They are given once. They are the sacraments that can only be received, received one time. That's your hint. One of them is baptism. What are the other two? We'll go right here for my two experts. One is... And the other is? Uh, okay, let's look at these. Can you be anointed more than one time? Yeah. Because you could get better, right? So you could be anointed. Can you get married more than one time? No. Well, what happens if your spouse dies? Well, or spouse dies, right? So I'm talking impossible to receive a second time. Well, because you receive it again. Keep going. We're, we're getting there. That's right. Look closely at me. Adorning Are you looking at me? So what do you see standing before you? Holy orders. Oh, and you were trying to think of the word. I was trying to think of the word. How you would phrase that word? That's right. Holy orders. No, that's it. Holy orders. Ordination. Yes, that was what okay. trying to go for. She was saying adoration, coordination, close, your relatives of one another. So here's the thing. It is three sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. You receive what is called a, a character. They're the sacraments that use, and we'll get into this when we speak oils later, probably when we speak about confirmation. So I won't get into it now in, in, in great length. But they have the oil called prism that is used, which signifies, I'll explain that in two weeks, but signifies the soul is changed. So that's great. So a person who's baptized is a permanent change in their soul. Yes? Correct. So there are degrees of holy orders. Well, different degrees, but we participate in one sacrament but in different degrees so we would say a bishop has the fullness of holy orders i'm a level two guy 
church, original sin taken away, receive sanctifying grace, have a character, which is not just the phrase used, means we're incorporated to the church, each of the characters it, draw one into the church. So as in baptism, you are incorporated into the life of Christ. He's marked with a seal that you belong to Christ. That's what that means. Yeah. So I want to say, um, because you're baptized, you're able to Yes, you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and charity in the soul. We say the theological gifts, faith, hope, and charity are infused in the soul. So the life of faith is being given to you. Excellent. And those virtues, that's why we call them theological virtues, because they're given, are given to you. You're, you're, this is the beginning of the life of faith, even if it's a child. And remember, because we said earlier, it's the beginning part. It's not end game. So don't think of someone like, well, they're already baptized. It needs to be nurtured. Be like if we, you know, when the gazebo was put in, they didn't come in. It wasn't just put together. I had a bunch of things on the ground, and then someone had to put all those things together. You had the elements to make it look nice, but someone needed to do the work. Same with baptism. And the last one is, I'll give it to you. It takes away all personal sin and punishment due to sin. That we're really referring to as an adult who's baptized. So if you're older and you have a lot of sin, you don't make a first confession. So people go through RCIA who aren't baptized, don't make their first confession before they, they get baptized. Because their sins are taken away in baptism. They would need to start going to confession right after, though. Well, hopefully not right after, but soon thereafter. Okay, we have two more questions. What is the meaning of the Christian name? This is important because I put this question on here because I've recognized people don't get this now. So this one's important. Who wants to, so in other words, the name given in baptism, what's the importance of that? Yes? Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. It is the name given for one for all eternity. I mean, that's a profound insight that parents are given the ability to name their children the name that God will call them for all eternity. Beautiful thing to reflect on. The name is important because God knows each of us by our name. That is our uniqueness to our personhood. You don't just go around and call people. You. You. In baptism, a Christian receives his or her name in the church. It is preferable that the name of a saint is chosen who might offer a model of sanctity and the assurance of his interest or her intercession. The reason I bring that up is it's becoming more and more common now that names foreign to the Christian heritage are being brought forward as names in baptism. It is recommended highly that the name given is a saint name 
it can't be a name contrary to the Christian tradition. So if someone rolled in and they were like, hi, this is Beelzebul, <laughs> my son, we would be changing that name to baptism. Or this is Diablo, <laughs> Lucifer, my child. So yeah, those are not winners. Those are contrary to the Christian name. So, but here's where I say, I mean, those things can happen. I've not had something quite like that, but I've had other weird things that are, and people come in with names that aren't really, so they'll be, I, I don't want to pick on any name because someone's going to probably be online like, that's my name. <laughs> but there, I'll, I'll pick one that just a general one that at least as far as I know doesn't have any connection. Desiree. Maybe a nice name. But it's not, it doesn't have any connection to the Christian tradition. So what I would recommend, there may be names that you like, but it should be, say, someone from Scripture, a canonized saint. And it's not just because the church wants the same names. Like, my patron is St. Christopher. My middle name is Thomas. In confirmation, I picked Nicholas. These are, are saints that I invoke to assist me. You know, when you pick Desiree, you can say, well, I want to be number one. But, you know, you don't have that same. And it, also our names, you should communicate when we're talking with people a piece of the Christian life. Like Christopher means Christ bearer. I don't think people think about that, but that's what the name means. The name for Christ is the Yes. That can occur. What I'm really saying is when you name your children, the church is, not just my opinion, the church actually says it is preferable that the name of a saint be chosen who might provide intercession. It cannot be a name contrary to the Christian tradition. In that case, if someone came with a name that, let's say someone's legal name was, God forbid, like Beelzebul or something like that, <laughs> If that was their legal name, I would have to change that. In fact, we would not baptize him Beelzebub. We would choose a name. Now, this I do. Uh, this is something I will often do for parents who don't make patron saints. So, let's say you have someone who comes in and their name is Desiree Crystal. You know, and you're looking at the sheet before baptism, and you're like, I don't think either of those is the same name. And I don't think there's anyone in scripture that has that. What I'll often do, and not all priests are doing this, but I do this, is I'll go to the parent beforehand and say, you know, oftentimes there's like eight or nine parents there. I'll say, is the parents of Desiree here? So I'll call them back and I'll say, oh, you know, happy to be here. I'll say, who's your child's patron? Now, nine and a half to 9.9 times out of 10. They go, I know it's the bubble coming out of their head. It's, Patron? So what I'll do is I save them the embarrassment and I'll say, like, don't you like the name Maria Gray? Oh, we love Maria Gray. I do too. It's also one of my favorites. So I'll be like, well, would you mind if when we baptize, I baptize her Desiree Maria? And then it would be nice since if, if you choose that as her patron that you raise her up knowing about that. And I've never had a parent. Sometimes they pick their own patron, 
but I've never had a parent in any way disagree with that. And that way you introduce, you're not changing the name. Like on the back, on the certificate, it's still the name that's on there. In my, where I reported in a book for myself, I write that same thing. But for the parents, they have that name and it's safe and they can invoke. What I'm saying for all of you is it would be better if you guys selected that name for the child already so that I don't need to do that work. And it's not just my opinion. That's what the church is really asking us to do. Yes? Okay, so hypothetically speaking, like what happens if your name doesn't have a fake name in it at all and then you get confirmed and you also don't have a major in saying? Well, <laughs> I would say that a good thing to do would then be you you pick a saint and you ask that saint to be your patron. <laughs> I'm sorry you don't have a formal one if you're someone in that category. Let's try to make sure that doesn't happen with this group here, like with our, the children you guys are going to have. That you may think that I'm when you say that I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked that can occur. Because we don't understand the concept of patrons. Like, we're like, oh, that's just a name. No, these are people that are interceding for us. People that are connected to us. The saints should be our friends. I learned this one time when I was driving with a sister. Talk about embarrassing. I was already a priest. <laughs> and she kept talking about Therese. Now, I know who St. Therese is, okay? But she was talking about her friend Therese. And she's like, oh, I spoke to Therese today, and I did this, and I'm like, so I'm thinking, like, who's Therese? Who is this that you're talking to? So I said to her, I'm sorry, sister, which Therese are you talking about? And she looked at me like I had eight heads. <laughs> Therese of Lestouf, father, I'm like, oh. <laughs> I mean, that's not usually how I talk about the saints. I'm not like, well, I spoke to Thomas today. <laughs> Who is that? Which Thomas did you speak to? Was you? No, 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 it's uh, Thomas More. Okay. <laughs> So it's just the way that you speak about it. They are connected to us. You may not reference in the way of the sister. I do pray to for the intercession of the saints every day to my patrons. Yeah. Just, I'm just thinking too, doesn't this have a connection to like when you look in scripture, you go back to Abraham, you go to Peter, they're renamed and, and there's sort of that significance when you're renamed by in the case of Abraham, God's father the case of Peter and bringing about Jesus, like there's that mission that comes with it. And so sure. we shouldn't underestimate the significance of our name when it comes to baptism. No, and absolutely. That, that, that's what I'm saying. When I said, or I think you said it, the name is carried over into eternity. That's profound. So it shouldn't just be a mom and dad go through a name book and come up with names, or because Aunt Sally, who's your second cousin removed, or whatever it may be, rolls in and it's like, oh, we got a name. No. It should be named after a saint or some connection to the Christian tradition for that reason. I mean, it's a profound thing to name a child. Same with picking a confirmation saint. So, does that give you some insight? All right, our last question. Who can be a godparent? Lily. A, a confirmed Catholic. That's correct. So they need to be, insofar as possible, one to be baptized is to be given a sponsor 
who is to assist an adult in Christian initiation together with the parents if a infant or if for an adult it's just the sponsor, the parents don't necessarily need to be involved, and who will help the baptized lead a life of harmony with baptism and faithful to the obligations connected to it. So nowhere in it is it a sponsor you pick someone who just happens to be a family member because that's the next one down the line. It doesn't say, please pick a family member who will not again reference your baptism, but it's just a nice event in the family. That's written nowhere. What it's saying is it's a witness at that moment and to continue for the whole of life, because here, and will help the baptized lead a Christian life in harmony with baptism, and to live faithfully the obligations connected with it. What are the obligations of baptism? Okay, more though. Like, live as a Christian sort of thing. What would the obligations we have as Christians? You think I'll go over here and get more. Yes, what's an obligation we have? You have a question or are you listening? No, I'm talking about, like, Yes, that's one of them. We need to proclaim the, the good news. Next. I'll give you one to help you go, okay? So another one would be we need to receive the sacraments. We're invited into the sacramental life of the church. What else will we have to do? Build up a relationship with the person of the Trinity. Care for the poor. Do the formal works of mercy. Live the spiritual works of mercy. This is what a Christian does. That's how it says, lead a Christian life in harmony with the obligations connected to it. Too often what we do is we get baptized, we, we get confirmed, and then everyone's living their own way. I mean, we don't see people who are on fire with the faith. They're not doing anything in the apostolate. You're like, what do you do for the faith? I go to a Bible study every other week when I feel good. Okay. That's it? I mean, like, that's it? Or some people you've been there and you like, you go to a person in the parish, like, I go to Mass every Sunday and say three Hail Marys before bed. But that's not, that's not, see, that's what we've come to. But it, it's not in line with what we profess. This is why I wanted to do this talk. We've come to believe things that aren't in line with actually what we believe. There's a whole great theology that's tied with baptism about what we're supposed to be doing. And we've got the vast majority, at least in this country, of Catholics who neither know what we profess here nor are living it. So we've got to change what we're doing. Understand it. For yourselves, I'd say, like, are you living the obligations of the faith? If you're, how many of you are a godparent or a sponsor for something? One, two, three, four, five, okay. So, you don't need to tell me. Are you in the life of that person? Are you helping them to live the life? Now, if they're about yay big, are you going to do that? And you need to talk with the parents or speak to the person and be like, my job here is to help you to become a saint. You know, I've got four godchildren and five people that I'm a confirmation sponsor for. They're prayed for every day by name. And I tell, for the ones who are older, three of the godchildren were uh, 
little kids. So when their parents asked me to be a godparent, I actually said to them, do you understand that if you, know, if you don't raise them to be Catholics, not going to Mass, whatever it is, I will call you out. If that is not what you want, I will not be the godparent. In other words, what I was saying, here are my obligations. If that's not what you're looking for, you're looking for someone to sell, send a telescope when he was seven, and the next time you contact him is on his, uh, on his ordination date, which is what happened with my godmother. I got a telescope at seven, and the next time I heard from him was when I was ordained. There were a lot of years in there. A lot of years, okay? That was honest to God, but that is not what the role of a godmother is. I'm not faulting her. I'm just saying factually that occurred. You guys would probably like a telescope. I know, I agree. I don't know if I still have it, though. But it was good. So, that's what we should do. Now, to be a godparent, you need to be male or female. Obviously. But if there's two of them, it needs to be a male and a female. You need to be at 16 years or older, have received confirmation and Holy Communion, and live a life in faith keeping with the functions that are taken on. A baptized person who is not Catholic can be a witness but not a godparent. This is always a problem. People are like, well, I've got a good friend who wants to be, but they're not Catholic. They can be a witness. They're not a godparent. Now, what you can do is you can have one witness and one godparent. But at least one person needs to be a Catholic. And you can have just one person. Okay. We've got like one minute left, so I, I was going to tell you a story. Maybe I'll tell uh, the, uh, I'll tell you the story. Okay. The other thing I wanted to do, and maybe we'll do it starting next week though we're done, is I want to walk through briefly the rite of baptism, which is, we'll do this to start next week very quickly, because I don't want to, I've got a lot to talk on the Eucharist, but just to go through the rite, like how does the rite go and what's in it? It'll probably take 10 minutes, okay? But I'll tell you a neat story about baptism. This is why always evangelizing, always using the grace of God in baptism. There, so when I was a deacon, we would have these baptismal you know, ceremonies. Sometimes a lot of people come, sometimes a few people come. So I go into the church one day, I think it was like the entire family was packed in there. I mean, there were probably 40 people for one baptism, which is a lot of people. So what, I always invite the children to come up near the font so they can see what's going on. But I want them to see this because I can say to them, this is where you were baptized or this is where you will be baptized. So I'm prone to throw a joke in too. So at the end of the baptism, after the rite, not I said, plenty of that, plenty of water. Does anyone else want to be baptized? And lo and behold, there's a girl with Down syndrome, who's 18 years old, who shoots her hand up and goes, I want to be baptized. But now it's <laughs> So what I said was, all right, I'll speak to you in a minute. So I went over to her afterwards, and I said, you really want to be baptized? She goes, I want to be baptized. So I said, where are your parents? So they were there. So I went over. She wasn't baptized. 
Her parents said we never had her baptized. So I said, if you'd like to do this, you talk with your parents, we can do some kind of instruction in the faith, and if you want to do it, I will baptize you. So that girl, I said, go home, and I told her parents, I said, why don't you talk to her when she's at home, find out if she wants you to leave you some faith instruction. That young woman, Charlotte, wrote me a month later uh, an email, or wrote me a card, I can't remember which, and said, Deacon, I want to be baptized. So I think a month or two later, after some instruction, she be returned to the same cathedral, and I baptized her. And she and I have been pen pals since then. Now, the neat thing is all I did was supposedly crack a joke. That girl really wanted to be baptized. And her parents had neglected it for 18 years. So she baptized. The parents were fully supportive, to their credit. I mean, they may have neglected it, but fully supportive. And last year, she wrote me and she said, now I want to get confirmed. Because they, because of her condition, we hadn't done, we didn't do confirmation at the same time. But I thought that a neat story, I always tell that story of baptism because here's the point of it. Don't be afraid to ask people who you may know who are in your life who aren't baptized or maybe have asked you questions about the faith. This is where I say like with RCIA. Never be afraid to say, would you like to be baptized? The number of times, they one other quick story, because these are neat stories. Christmas Eve, at the same assignment, you can imagine, it's busy at parishes. Woman knocks on the door, comes in, sits down, and tells me she has stage four cancer. Her son had gone to O'Connell High School, which is a high school up in Arlington. I'm at the Cathedral St. Thomas More. And she said, I'm not Catholic. My husband is no longer with me. My son, who goes to college now, he's older, we, he's baptized, but he refuses to accept the fact that I'm going to die. So we had a nice conversation. She said, I need to find out how I can tell him I'm dying. So we had a conversation about that. She's standing at the door to leave. And I said, do you want to be baptized? She turns back and says, no one has ever asked me that before. I said, well, you think about it. Let me know if you want to be baptized. She calls me within a week. I had to go back to seminary because I was still in seminary. We get her in a sacramental prep class. She is baptized, confirmed, receives her first communion, and dies within a month. So I have three times, that's two of them, but Charlotte's a little different, but I've asked two people ever directly, do you want to be baptized who weren't? Both of them got baptized from them. So my line is every person who I ask if they want to be baptized gets baptized. That's only two people. <laughs> So I need to be careful I choose, and that where my numbers go. <laughs> I need to keep my numbers up. But I do want to say, I want to encourage you to, to not to be bold about that, to encourage people to say, you, have you thought about baptism? Have you thought about the Catholic faith? Would you like to come with me to RCIA? That's why I always say, more the merrier, more the merrier. Go, go into the dorms. Maybe there's someone who like asks you a lot of questions. Say, can you go? I mean, Diana goes to RCIA. Do you like RCIA? It's a great class. So it's a great class. You went last year. 
Was it a good class? You learn, and it's great because people learn the faith. If anyone here, you know, wants to come and learn, you've got to go the whole class, though. But it's great for the non-Catholics. There are people who have never gotten the sacraments but came and learned the faith there. I'm happy with that. Maybe they'll get baptized next year. Okay. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming.